Hi there, House Culture listener. If you enjoy this episode or have enjoyed listening to other episodes in our series, please support and donate to us through the Acast Supporter feature. All donations will help us create the content that you love listening to. You can decide how much you give and there is no regular commitment. So it could be a one-off and every now and then or once every time you listen. It's really up to you. Click on the supporter link in the episode description and with Google or Apple Pay, it will take you less than 30 seconds to make your contribution. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hi, this is Darren Jay, and you listen to the House Culture Podcast with myself and the one and only Mr. Matt Wells. House Culture. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the House Culture Podcast, hosted as always by me, the managing editor at House Culture, Matt Rouse. Here we are in our fourth season, and it's proving to be one of our most successful ones yet, with huge guests featuring alongside the interesting personalities that we always like to include as well. It's not just all about those headliners, you know. Whether you're a regular listener that has been here from the beginning or someone who might be tuning in for the first time today, we want to thank you for taking the time and making the choice to listen to our conversations with the artists, producers, promoters and DJs who are woven into the very fabric of this rich tapestry we call house culture. If you are new here, then welcome to House Culture. We are a collective of house music fans who have come together through their mutual love of the beat to celebrate the spirit of house music. Instagram is where you can find us, so please follow House Culture Net and get yourself connected to a worldwide dance floor of over 100,000 club connoisseurs. We also have an extremely diverse discography of voices in our back catalogue of episodes. Already featured have been the likes of rave scene legend Slipmat, alternate alter ego Mark Archer, superstar DJs Fatboy Slim, Paul Oakenfold and Roger Sanchez, and current heavyweights such as Purple Disco Machine, Josh Butler and Alan Fitzpatrick. As always, we have some more huge guests lined up for later in this season, so hit that follow button to make sure you don't miss out. Now let's get on with the episode, shall we? In this one, I sit down with a legend from the rave, jungle and drum and bass scene. Not only did he pioneer this sound in the UK at iconic events like AWOL, he has taken his breakbeats across the world to great success. It is of course Darren Jay, 
And in our conversation, you will hear about Darren's introduction to the rave scene. It was the second sunrise. And I remember going with a bunch of friends, you know, driving around the M25 in the middle of nowhere, coming down dirt tracks and coming out to this big hangar and getting in there. And there was like 10,000 people in there. And the music from outside, the bass and everything. And I was like, I'm liking that before I've even got in there. Tales from the unofficial headquarters for the jungle drum and bass scene. Then I remember Black Market opened and then that just changed everything. I remember walking in there and hearing the sound from outside and thinking, well, that's like walking into a club. And why legendary night AWOL was so important to the scene as a whole. AWOL was the place that the DJs went to when they finished their sets. So you'd have like Groove Rider, Hype, Bookham, Fabio, Frost, Brian, all of these people, they'd all do their sets. And they'd end up there. We've got a call one night about two in the morning. Randall can't make it. Get in your car, get your reps and go. And I remember thinking, if you can play here, you can play anywhere. I love this one. And I hope you do too. This is Darren J. House Culture. Hi, Darren. Thanks so much for joining us on the House Culture podcast today. I'm so happy to have you here. You're a legend from the rave scene a pioneer of the jungle sound that has taken you all over the world. You're now a resident on the White Isle of Ibiza, where you have been adding drum and bass to that island's already cosmopolitan mix of dance music genres. But before we dig into all of that, we always want to go back to the beginning and find out where you grew up and how you first discovered music that you loved. Hi Matt, how are you doing? Uh, thanks for having us. You're welcome. Appreciate it. Wow, going back, that's a long time. <laughs> uh, I was fascinated by music as a kid. I think there was a couple of reasons maybe for that. My mum's best friend, we grew up in uh, Greenwich, my mum's best friend, her husband, his job was to go around pubs once a week and change all the seven inches in, uh, in jukeboxes. Mm-hmm. So he used to have thousands and thousands of these records and he used to, okay. t- he used to take all of them back used to give some of them to the neighbours. Mm-hmm. So we would literally have the charts and then loads of other music as well, like big hits yeah. in our house. And we had a, we had an old record player, because how old I am, it was a stereogram. <laughs> uh, and used to put the little, go and get the little the middles in them and put them on and constantly play music. My mum, we didn't really have loads of TV on. My mum was more into listening to music. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, that become a passion of mine. Music was a real escape for me. Yeah. And I, I realised at quite an early age, I was more passionate about music than most other kids. Most other friends and that I talked to about records, I'd say like, oh, you've got to listen to this. And I'd bring them around and I'd play it and they'd go like, yeah, yeah, it's all right. And I'd be like, no, no, you're not listening right. You've got to really <laughs> listen to it. And uh, yeah, the signs were there that years later, maybe I was going to become a DJ of some sort. Yeah. But, yeah, that was, that was my first intro to music. Being upstairs, going to sleep, my mum playing music downstairs, uh, talking with her friends. Mm-hmm. Certain records I remember loving. My mum quite liked Motown. She loved a little bit of Roy Orbison, mm-hmm. uh, the Everly Brothers. She liked people that was Stevie Wonder. And people that I, as I grew up and got older, I realised then people were great songwriters as well. Yeah. So yeah. I think that was the first inkling of why music was important to me as a kid. Mm-hmm. And to have that, you know, being given all of that music as well and that kind of breadth of genres and different sounds, yeah. different voices, you yeah. know, different artists from different backgrounds, you know, that's a real musical education. And you don't know it at the time, do you? I suppose you look back I mean, on it now. Looking back now, I think that's what maybe made my taste a little bit more eclectic to do with what I like. Even now my record collection is very quite varied. Mm-hmm. And uh, I listen to everything. I mean, absolutely everything. Bands, yeah. not just dance music. 
Uh, and I think that definitely helped me uh, broaden my horizons musically, I think. Yeah, yeah, brilliant. And so, you know, you were the guy, I suppose, who had an amazing record collection. And we've spoken to, obviously, a lot of DJs and, and promoters and producers all on this podcast. And, you know, there is always that either the radio was always on or they started collecting records at a very early age and did that easily segue into when you were a bit older always being the one that people were knocking on the door and saying oh we've got a party Darren can you bring all your records and play like how 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 did that happen like when you were more of a teenager and growing up I think one my mum having good taste in music helped Mm -hmm. my mum used to buy a lot of albums she was we didn't need to buy singles we had them all Uh, it's really weird as well because I, people ask me about getting into DJing and I never ever set up the plan to get mm-hmm. into DJing. I was actually a record collector. You know, I'm a hoarder with stuff anyway. Mm-hmm. I, uh, at one stage, I had every flyer from probably every party that was in London or well, most of them around the country. I used to go to record shops around Soho mm-hmm. at like 86, 87, and I'd pick up handfuls of flyers and I used to keep about five of them pressed this is how nerdy I was, Matt. I used to have the front covers and the back covers of every single copy of New Musical Express and Sounds it was at the time. Yeah. I used to keep my flyers with them. Amazing. And uh, when I went to live in Tenerife, jumping forward, I went to live in Tenerife in 1991, I took a load of these flyers up and we'd done the whole of the club. It was every flyer from like Biology, Back to the Future. Wow. Is it Land of Oz, Spectrum, Assume. I had all of these flyers. Subsequently, over the years, I've lost them. I'm glad because some of them now are worth about £25. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I have thousands of them. Wow. But, uh, the most yeah, expensive always, wallpaper. <laughs> very, very expensive. But I've always, I've always, if I like something, I've always, I've never realised that I was into any kind of collection mm. until I sat back and looked at it. And I think with music, my first bit of pocket money ever, my mum gave me, and I went out to a record store in Blackheath, I remember, and I bought... I think it was Ride a White Swan by T-Rex, mm-hmm. Mark Bowling and T-Rex. And on the B-side was either Jeep Star or a track called Life's a Gas. Mm-hmm. That was the first record I remember physically purchasing because I didn't really need to. We had lots of music. Uh, and, yeah, you're right. Kids used to say, can we come around and borrow your records? And we used to give them, like, stacks of seven inches and a couple of albums. Yeah. It was all surrounded by music, always. I was, mm. I was infatuated by music as a kid. I think I still am. Cool. I mean, so let's move into, um, you know, going into your kind of teenage years, you know, was there a scene that you're particularly following or getting involved with and like your clubbing experiences starting off when you're first going out? What what kind of scene were you into and what was the music like back then at that time? Well, funny enough, when you asked me to do a chart, which you're going to do at the end, mm-hmm. you said what record introduced you to dance music, which is a very great and a brilliant question. Also, when you actually have to really plant yourself back to that time. Mm-hmm. But I think the, the first thing that really got me into dancing, which I think for me become a massive part of growing up. When I was about 13, lived on a council estate. I'm actually there now. I'm actually back in London now okay. at the same house that I grew up in. No way. On this estate, there was a kid who was a bit older than me. He was very cool. His name was Mark Fields. And he was... Uh, a kid that was really into soul music. Mm-hmm. And when I was at school, I remember a lot of the older kids that I looked up to was into reggae. And then used to have a thing where you could like play a lot of reggae and stuff at school and the school, like school dinner times and stuff. And so I got into reggae through them. But through Mark, I got into soul music. He introduced me to that back band, mm-hmm. and Ohio Players, uh, God, Earth, Wind and Fire, 
just a lot of really, really good warriors. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, beautiful. It's too much to mention, but he mm -hmm. got me into, he used to, I said, on a Sunday afternoon, I remember she'd go, if I ran to come around to yours, can we play the music a bit louder, Mark? We had a much better stereo than we ever had. And he's like, yeah. We go downstairs in this spare room, and he used to put this music on, and I used to watch him dance. And it was like, I always thought this kid was so cool. He had rhythm, mm -hmm. he had great taste in music. And somehow, some of that I think rubbed off on me. I was becoming, I've become into soul, I've got into soul music you know, mm -hmm. very early on. I remember a kid at school as well when I was, I think I was about 14. And his dad was a GI, his dad was a American Air Force, he was at Air Force bases. And when he came to our school in the school holidays, he used to go home to, well, back to New York for his dad for the six weeks holiday. Mm -hmm. And he'd come back with stacks of music. And I remember he used to say to me, do you want to lend some of it? I like record it. Because obviously you just get the old tape recorders and record everything. Yeah. And I'll never forget, I was kind of into listening to a lot of this different soul that Mark was introducing me to. And uh, the kid at school gave me this couple of albums. And the first thing I noticed was this album. And it was the cover just caught me. And it was uh, Parliament and Funkadelic, George Clinton, mm -hmm. One Nation Under the Groove. And that made me then start to search out stuff that was maybe more American, like imports and stuff, you know? Yeah. So that was my first, it was a very strange time though, because at the time I was heavily into reggae, mm -hmm. but also the whole punk thing was taking off. And that was really, uh, that was huge at the time. Yeah. So you had this real cross uh, pollination of music, but that was then me starting to listen to punk music or new wave as some of it was called. Mm -hmm. I was listening to reggae, I was listening to soul, and soul was the thing that I really, really got into, soul music. Yeah, yeah. And being, you know, known as like a soul boy, being in that type of scene back then, like what what did that kind of entail? What was the, you know, because we've spoken to a few people like Terry Farley and Brandon Block and whatever who were into this scene as well. And just what was it that separated you um, from, you know, as a tribe, you know what I mean? Like in terms of fashion or like how you carried yourself or what dance moves you were doing, you know, just describe that scene for us. I think for me, the soul boy thing was first to do with the fashion. I remember jam shoes, which were like pointed shoes with white bits at the top. Baggy trousers with, with like these big like uh, cords going down the sides almost, mm -hmm. and then you sort of came out of that and you went into sort of Clark boots and Lois frayed jeans and Gabici uh, jumpers. That was also a big reggae thing that crossed over again. Mm -hmm. It's really weird because a lot of this stuff all kind of come back, all goes around in circles and comes yeah. back. And uh, Farrah's was a big thing then. Slacks, Farrah slacks, which was obviously golfing trousers. You just kind of the fashion was. Amazing times in music and fashion, I think, then as well. I really feel blessed that I was part of that. But I think the soul thing was something that I, the soul and the reggae was something that I embraced probably more than the other genres. Mm -hmm. But what I liked about punk, even though I didn't like some of the music, some of it I loved, but I liked that whole do-it-yourself attitude. And that's what the whole rave scene became. Mm -hmm. yeah. I think jungle especially, it was like, you don't need to sign to majors. You don't need to, you can do it yourself. Mm -hmm. punk, punk music showed you that. And a lot of, you know, there's lots of very negative things about punk, but I think uh, the way it changed the fabric of, uh, of the music business was a healthy thing. Mm -hmm. Definitely. And that that um, that democratisation of just like, yeah, you can do it yourself. What You know, why not? You've got that passion. You just give it a go. I mean, you mentioned the rave scene there as well. And obviously, you know, it seems like a natural transition to go from being a soul boy and being into that kind of music and a lot of people we've spoken to then 
when the rave scene blew up, it was a natural thing for them to start going to and getting involved with. I mean, was that the same for you? How did that connect for you when, when that kind of started blowing up? And just tell us about your, your initial raving experiences. Well, I think I used to go out to clubs that played, let's just say, Sharon and Tracy's soul music. Mm-hmm. And then you had your more specialist stuff. And I was on around with kids that was a little bit older than me. I tended, I tended to veer towards kids that were pretty cool. So we used to go to places. I remember places like Ombre's off of Oxford Street, excuse me, used to be a good place. Uh, I think Gossips years later. Uh, there was something when I was growing up, was, I just kind of got to the end of it called Global Village, which was actually at Heaven. Mm-hmm. Uh, which turned out, you know, turned out to be like Land of Oz. I was going back the years late, Land of Oz, and subsequently Rage. Mm-hmm. But uh, there's, I remember going down to the Pink Toothbrush in Southend quite a lot. That was a real big soul scene down there. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was a place in Beckenham called Tights, the Treks, had a few different names. Probably only get about 200 people in there, but I remember Thursday night we'd go down there. Mm-hmm. I used to go to a place in Tooney Street called The Oak, uh, a bar in Tooney Street. And, Nicky Holloway used to DJ there playing old soul music. Mm-hmm. I look back and I think, I met Nicky a few years later, and I used to look back and think, he was probably about my age. He was probably DJing when he was about 16, 17 in there. But he used to play a lot of old soul, mm-hmm. you know? He used to play uh, some really good music. Mm-hmm. So there was lots of different places that I used to go to. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, you know, you had the records as well. Were you going to these clubs and seeing these records being played, you know, like maybe like people like Nicky Holloway or whatever, and did you think you know, I could do this, um, or was it a case of like, I'm just a collector and I'm just happy to have this yeah, stuff never at home? Ever, never crossed my mind. I mean, as a kid, I wanted to be in a band. Mm-hmm. I never, ever thought to myself, I never, ever looked at DJs and thought, I want to do that, ever. Mm-hmm. But the strange thing was, I used to watch what they was doing and really study, without realising at the time. Mm-hmm. I was thinking, you know, because the whole electro thing come along and people playing two decks. And I know a lot of people... That was their intro into wanting to be a DJ. Yeah. It still wasn't for me even that. I was more into listening to Soul Sonic Force or listening to this music and still not thinking, oh, what am I getting two decks and having a go at this? Mm-hmm. What that that actually came almost by accident because I remember being in record stores when the when I got into Acid House and the rave scene, I remember going around trying to find the music that I'd heard. It wasn't always easy to do because at a lot of them parties I was pretty much worse for wear trying to remember what a track said or what it done and when the bass line happened was probably yeah. almost impossible <laughs> but I'm sure I wasn't the first person to walk to a record shop and say you got that record that goes boom 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 and the bloke behind the counter just going yeah they all go like that <laughs> uh, but but I, it's, it's really odd I remember buying a lot of music like hunting down records and especially with hearts and I remember looking around stores like, for instance, there was a store in Berwick Street called Bluebird Records. Mm-hmm. Big shout going out to Lewis, who used to run on it, who used to look like Jesus. Uh, Lewis used to be the manager in there. And I remember standing in there and he'd put music on and you'd go and I'd get, and then I realised that I had piles of records. And the only other people that had piles of records in that shop, I didn't know at the time, but it was people like Steve Bicknell, Harvey, mm-hmm. Paul Oakenfold, Danny Rampley, Trevor Fung. I didn't realise who these people were at the time. I was probably going out dancing to their music and going to their clubs or their events. Mm-hmm. But I was primarily to get this music that I'd heard. And then some of the, a couple of people said to me, you're obviously a DJ, yeah? And I was like, no. And they're like, really? Mm-hmm. And then I started hanging around with a couple of other people that was starting to DJ themselves. And I kind of started to think, hold on, maybe I could do this. 
Yeah, it's how, often how it happens, I think. And just finding something, oh, I'm passionate about this. Let's find an outlet for it, the next level of it, if you're already collecting records and whatever. I mean, what um, what was it like getting the first like decks or anything like that? Uh, you know, did you have any mentors? Or like you said, you were studying people in clubs and not really knowing like what it was going to come, what was going to come for you. Yes, yeah, like just take us through that. My little brother worked outside a store. He worked on a market store on the weekends outside a store in uh, Chapel Street, might have been Chapel Street Market in Islington. Mm-hmm. Anyways, my brother used to, hang outside, used to work outside the store and he said, I don't know what these guys are selling, but it's like a fashion, uh, girl's fashion shop. But they've been getting these cues going around the block. So he asked the guys, and there's a guy in there called Dave and his brother Denzel. And uh, these guys were the guys that went on to, to uh, be Back to the Future and Summerworlds. Mm-hmm. So my brother said, what are these parties? And he'd come home with his ticket one time. It's like a flyer. I had a picture of someone on a horse. The first equestrian event of something it was called. And I think that was the first ever sunrise. So I don't know what's happening. I was working or doing something that weekend. And he took one of, my, he took one of our good friends, Rob. And it was like 8,500 people in the warehouse, somewhere in the middle of nowhere. And... Uh, you know, obviously ecstasy was involved mm-hmm. and he was like, my brother came back and he was like, someone had told him a secret. Mm-hmm. He's like, listen, you've stumbled upon this thing. If I wouldn't have worked outside that store, I probably wouldn't have ever taken any notes of it. And my brother said, love, you need to come to the next one of the big parties. And it was the second sunrise. And I remember going with a bunch of friends and only my brother and Robert, the only two that had been, and we went about 25 of us, you know, driving around the M25, following people down like, in the middle of nowhere, coming down dirt tracks and coming out to this big hangar and getting in there. And there was like 10,000 people in there mm. and the music from outside, the bass and everything. And I was like, I'm liking that before I've even got in there. <laughs> and I remember getting in there and they're saying there are nights that change your life. It mm. really did change my life that night. I remember going in there and uh, never going to shy away from the fact as well, drugs were a massive part of it mm. as well. You know, I'm not people to go and take drugs. It was amazing i remember going in there and uh i can't remember who was playing at the time i can't remember who was actually on i don't think it really mattered at the time it was just the music mm-hmm. but lots of american imports being played you know marshall jefferson mm-hmm. strangely i remember can you feel it that we heard mm-hmm. and all of this music it's like oh my god that was uh just really good good soulful music but which was actually house yeah you know uh, and a lot of the American stuff blew me away. As soon as I heard it, there was an instant affection for it. Mm-hmm. And I remember coming out and saying to Denzel that was running, when's the next one? Tell me it's next week. He said, it doesn't quite work like that. <laughs> like, this is a, it's a lot of organising or whatever. But yeah, that was uh, that was that was my intro to, yeah. to the rise. And then we started to go to like Futures, Spectrum, which then turned into Land of Oz at Heaven. Mm-hmm. And uh, there was I remember there was something on like every night and I know people find it really hard because I held a job down for a good for a good year you know <laughs> and uh, for a good good year that I was going out sometimes like four nights a week and then it ended up later on I gave up my job mm. and I remember going out I remember for quite a while going out seven nights a week and people said ah oh, you're making that up but if you ask people there was something on every night you know I remember on the Tuesday something I was driving down to Brighton to go to something for a hundred people <laughs> And then you'd end up at the milk bar or somewhere on a on a on a Thursday, you know. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, very very great times. Yeah. There was something. There was that whole cultural explosion of music, art, and fashion, which at the time we didn't realise. But I know it's a word I use a lot, but I still feel blessed to be in the right time, at the right place at the right time for that, because 
we all know that's brought us to where we're at today. I mean, me and you wouldn't be sitting here probably having this conversation. No, no, not at all. Yeah. So, I mean, let's let's talk about you as a as a DJ then. You know, when did Darren Jay, the DJ, kind of come about? And, you know, you've obviously been going to these raves and things and, you know, seeing that whole scene develop and, you know, it move, you know, from that kind of acid house sound into more like that British made, you know, rave hardcore you know, were you buying those records as well when that came about? I noticed straight away that most of the, the, the imports that I liked, I remember going to lots of different record stores. I think it was Red Records. It might be called St. Kells, Derek and all the guys at Red Records, which was round by Carnaby Street. I didn't realise at the time that the stuff that I was more drawn towards was the, what you could say was black, gay, niche house music, more the Chicago stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, I always liked some of the techno that come out of Detroit, but I liked them more because of what I grew up on. I liked the soulful stuff more. Yeah. Then I remember Black Market opened, and then that just changed everything because here was a store that I remember going in there and walking. The first time I remember going in the store, I remember walking in there and hearing the sound from outside and thinking, well, that's like walking into a club. Mm-hmm. And then you went in there and you had my memories, I smoked. I smoked a lot of weed for a lot of times and my memory might have been spot on about dates and times. So if anyone's watching this, don't hold me to it. I remember going into that store and I think it was house upstairs. And at the back, I remember they were selling tickets for parties. And I remember certain people, it was a little bit snobby with who they gave the records to. I'm a quick learner. I started to notice in certain, by now I've started working out who the DJs are as well. Right? <laughs> And then I start like, so you go and stand next to this person. They might think you're together. <laughs> so <laughs> if you just got a record, you might get one as well. Sometimes it's like, we've only got five of these. And they went to certain piles. Yeah. And I remember one time, a lot of people had cleared out. And I remember someone like Frankie Fonset or someone saying to me, you a DJ? Mm-hmm. And I was like, they're like, where'd you play? And I'm like, oh, I've done. And they're like, I said, I just love music. And they're like, right. And I don't know if it was a respect for being honest and saying, I'm not. These guys would have known because they all knew each other. Oh, I wasn't DJing anywhere at the time. But they kind of used to give me a good pile of records. And when I'd go in, they'd kind of know what I liked. They got, they got to know what I liked. Mm-hmm. That was quite a big thing as well. Yeah. So you'd go in there and they'd start to put a few records away for you and you start to listen and you'd have a little listen. And what you didn't like, you'd give them back and mm-hmm. they'd give it to other people. Yeah. And uh, I started, I was going out at this time and I'd, I'd become really good friends with two guys. There was a guy called Players Kenny that lived in North London, who was playing a lot of really good soulful house, and a guy called George Kelly, mm-hmm. uh, that was putting out some, that, he just started production as well. Me and George become very good friends. And I remember starting to hang out with these guys and go out. And there was, I remember there was a young kid at the time called Matthew, that turned out to be Matthew B, uh, Aaron Bushwhacker. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Bushwhacker. He was very young at the time, I remember. But I remember watching him at a couple of clubs and thinking, this kid can mix. Mm-hmm. This kid's got something to bat. I didn't realise at the time I was watching what certain people done and that I liked. When I was going out, even before this, there was kids like, uh, people like Kid Bachelor. Mm-hmm. I used to like what he used to play. Uh, I noticed people like, I noticed people like Paul Oakenfold, especially at Land of Oz, playing like stuff that was quite industrial, like split second. He would play that and then about 10 records later, he'd play Young MC. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking, oh, I like the way that he's gone from this to that. So that, I started to look at the way someone like Openfold would program music as well. You know, he wouldn't be scared to take people on a bit of a journey. Mm-hmm. So yeah, in a strange way, I was watching people 
and maybe taking something a little from people. I remember watching, I think that was called Tonka, and that was from Brighton mm-hmm. originally. I'm not sure I might have that one, mm-hmm. but it was uh, it was Harvey, Harvey yeah. Chocky and Rev. Mm-hmm. And I got to know Chocky, I think, was a big tall guy that ended up working in a record store up there. I got to know him really well. And I remember watching him and Harvey DJ once, and I really liked what Harvey was doing. He was a great DJ. Mm-hmm. There's almost too many to mention. I haven't left anyone out, but I just remember I was, there was little parts of what people was doing. I really took on board. Yeah. And uh, at the time, not even realising that was what I was doing. Mm. And then when I got decks, I was thinking, right, so a little bit of this, a little bit of that, you know, all goes to make the, the cakes taste sweet or whatever the saying is. Yeah. I mean, so what was your kind of big break as a DJ, did you think? I mean, it sounds amazing that you're already a known face in these record shops and, you know, to have that foot in the door at that stage. I mean, I remember when I was a kid and I, I'd go to Blackmark. I grew up in Peterborough and I'd travel down to London with my mum as like a 13-year-old boy and I'd drag around all these record shops and like I'd just get no time of day in any of these record shops at all because they just had no idea who I was. But yeah, I wasn't like a permanent fixture and like I've got my mum with me stood in the corner like just like, oh, this is nice. I think some of it, Matt, I'd like to say, if I say I've become a bit of a face in little stores because the manager knew he was going to take a shed load of money off me. <laughs> it was like, this guy buys as much music, if not more, than these DJs that are out earning money. No, I wasn't earning any money out of it at the time. <laughs> but I just put I put everything into it, like mm-hmm. everything. So I remember going out with George Kelly a few times and players Kenny. And I remember me and my friend, we said we're going to put our own party on. Mm-hmm. And it was in Greenwich. And it was in a pub called The White Swan, which was right next to a magistrate's court, which unfortunately, as a kid, I'd spent quite a bit of time in uh, for all the wrong reasons. And it was a pub that was frequented by a lot of police. I remember my mate said, yeah, we can get in there. And I said, policemen drinking there. This is not the place to do a party. He said, no, they do private events. Trust me, it'll be all right. We've done this party. We called it Safe. And uh, I remember I found a baseball cap that had Safe on the front. I was like, oh, I was made up, you know. So uh, we invited Kenny and George down and they came and played. And I'd had decks at home and I was trying. Mm-hmm. But I still hadn't quite got the hang of it. And then I'm like, you just got to go and do it. You've got to bite the bullet and do it. Yeah. We've got all of our friends down. And because people was into the whole, you know, a rave, let's say, I hate that word, but a rave can pop up any minute. Mm-hmm. When people used to drive past and see a load of kids that was all dressed in the same kickers and flared jeans and whatever, you know, hoodies and big sparsking hutch cardigans. Yeah. People used to see kids that were dressed the same as them. They'd just stop and come in. Mm-hmm. So I remember going on and playing really being really nervous. I'm thinking, are you going to make yourself look like a right tip? But I went on and I held me on. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, okay, these guys are actually getting a living out of this and I'm doing all right. And then a guy I drove past, really funny story, a guy I drove past called Colin Jarvis and he was in a punk band called Conflict. Mm-hmm. But he used to put on raves, uh, parties. And one of them was called Asylum at Woolwich Polytechnic. And it was in a small club for about four or 500 people. And he was in like a little cell with bars at the window. It was like a very strange place. And he went past and my girlfriend was on the door and he said to her, Tracy, bless you. And he said, who's playing in there? She said, oh, loads of big DJs. Anyway, paid his five or whatever and come in. First thing that caught his eye was there was a massive queue outside. Mm-hmm. And the second thing that it was a pub that not, most people wouldn't have put a party on like that. Mm-hmm. And it was packed. 
So he gave him, he gave my girlfriend his number. He said, where does he play? He said, oh, he plays all over. <laughs> like totally bad. <laughs> so, uh, and then I remember phoning him and he's like, yeah, do you want to come and play at my party? And I was like, yeah, all right. You know, he said, it's in Woolwich next Friday. So uh, I was like, right. So he said, where'd you play? And I said, oh, I play a few places. And he's like, all right. And I remember getting down there and there was a guy on, I can't remember his name now, but he was playing really hard music, like really more of the kind of Detroit stuff, mm-hmm. but also the British and the German kind, a lot of the R&S, R&S them sort of like banging, yeah. banging, banging. And I was like, I liked it, but I didn't like a couple of hours of it. So I was just listening and listening and thinking, all right, when you go on, he's literally ground them into the ground, literally. He's like thrilled them in. Like there was nowhere to go, you know, yeah, people. Yeah, yeah. So when I went on, I started, the first thing I noticed, I kind of changed the tempo of the party. I started playing some, there was something called like hip house at the time, mm-hmm. fast Eddie and stuff. I started playing stuff like that and then slowly brought it up a little bit more into like more soulful Chicago stuff. And then by the end, I kind of took it back to where he had, he had taken it. Mm-hmm. And I remember playing for about an hour and the guy come up to me and said, no, the next DJ's, he's not making it. And I'm like, he's like, can you carry on playing? I was like, by now, I was loving it, you know? And I was like, yeah, I'll carry on anyway. I remember playing. I think, sorry, I think also on that game, there might be a thing going back. I think once when I was out with George and that, George had to go to the toilet and he was like, quickly, Darren, just go on for 10 minutes. Look, these are the three records I'm going to play. And I'm like, oh, right, okay. And going on and playing. Yeah. And George being George on the way back to the toilet, he pulled and ended up like, standing there chatting up for another 10 minutes. I think I ended up playing for about 15, 20 minutes. And I think oh, that gave me a little bit of confidence to think we could do it. Yeah. I think that was what the first initial thing was. Mm-hmm. But uh, I remember this guy saying, oh, can we, someone else, there's no one else here. And I remember playing and loving it, like just thinking, mm-hmm. I could do this, you know? And it was kind of, uh, yeah, the rest, the, it's really weird because he said to me, oh, we do some of the big events upstairs. And I said, really? He said, yeah. And luckily enough, one's on in a, in a couple of weeks' time. You can play at that if you like. Mm-hmm. And I remember getting up to there and when I walked in, and there was like 1,500 people in there. And I was like, Ah, shit, shit. <laughs> this is where you kind of come unstuck. You're going to get found out, you know? <laughs> and uh, I remember being on, there was a guy called Tony Wilson, who was a good friend of the mm-hmm. Oakenfold. He used to put parties on uh, the Down and Tavern all day. They was legendary stuff. He would play music by like Netsa Ebb, all this industrial stuff. He would play Hole of the Moon mm-hmm. by the Waterboys. He would play Sympathy for the Devil. He played French disco, a real mixture of music. Paul Oakenfold loved what uh, Tony Wilson used to do. Mm-hmm. He wasn't the best technical DJ, but what he'd done was very different. Yeah. And uh, I remember I went on after him, and it was most of the people there was there for him. Mm. And the guy that was about to come on after me, that at the time I didn't know, was Mickey Finn. So, uh, so I've gone in there, and he's playing all of this very like different music. I love what I love what he played. Actually, it was really really recreative. Mm-hmm. And then I'm thinking, ah. Oh, you start doubting yourself. They're not going to like what you like. They're not going to like, they're liking this. Mm. And then after a few tracks, I think it started with, uh, it was Your Love, Frankie Knuckles, right? Mm-hmm. I went to start with it and I thought, it's a bit of a big track to start with. You know, real gay anthem that track was, the original. Mm-hmm. And I thought, no, don't play that now. Play it later on. So I started, I eased him in again slowly and I thought, well, no one's booing. No one's thrown any bottles yet. And then I remember about halfway through my set, I'll never forget this moment. This is my, I wanted to die moment. I was waiting to put this record on. And I remember Mickey walked in with his girlfriend at the time. And they walked in and he's like, right. And I knew I was only halfway through my set. And it got to a little thing. And I remember like I should smoke a bit of weed. Someone 
rolled me a joint and he started smoking his joint. Well, now I'm getting a little bit confident. Now I'm a little bit more confident where I'm relaxed. And I'll never forget, I had this unbelievable mix I used to do. I thought it was, anyway. This unbelievable mix with, with uh, slowly teasing and bringing in Frankie Knuckles. And uh, I've done this mix. <laughs> I must have been quite stunned at the time as well. And I remember doing it, and Mickey's, I looked over, and Mickey's looking at me going, like that. And I'm thinking, that's nice, because there's a lot of competition between DJs. Mm-hmm. If you knew, sometimes a lot of people didn't really give you the time of day. I remember doing this mix, and then slowly this time, I brought this Frankie Knuckles track, which was a one of the best tunes that is one of my, my top 10 of all records. Mm-hmm. And I remember a couple of people going, coming to the side of me and going like that. <laughs> Put it over to the thing. I was so stunned I took it off. <laughs> <laughs> After an unbelievable mix, I took off the record that was playing and everyone just went, Ray! and I went back to the beginning. I was like, right, that's a lesson. Don't ever get too cocky. Oh, that's but, hilarious. Uh, my first introduction to a big party, the first time I wanted the place to just uh, a hole to appear and swallow me, you know. But uh, it's also a great lesson. Yeah. Don't get too stoned while you're playing. <laughs> <laughs> so if I go back to 1990, I started getting a little bit of DJing work. Mm-hmm. And then you think, I'm going to do this for a living, you know, possibly. I gave up my job, stupid thinking that. But at the time, you know, if you believe in something, you have to go for it. Mm-hmm. And the work stopped coming in. And I was like, ah, I've made a massive boo-boo. Mm-hmm. And then someone called me, might have been Simon Baseline Smith, funny enough, and said, Darren, I've been working with this guy in Tenerife for the last couple of years. Mm-hmm. I think you'd be a good fit. Thank you, Simon. <laughs> I think you'd be a good fit. His name's Jay Allen. So I spoke to this guy, and he said, yeah, I've been running things out, and I've been doing a lot of parties and stuff out there for years now. Mm-hmm. Simon's not coming back this year. He's been to concentrate on doing stuff in Derby, where he was living at the time, and mm-hmm. some other music. And if you want to take Simon's place, I'd be happy to have you on board. I've heard some good things. So I said, okay. And when I got out there, the first thing I noticed was that when I went to a couple of nights, everyone was playing really old music. A lot of the DJs had been there for a long time. And I had all this new music that probably no one had heard before, a lot of it as well. Mm-hmm. So I turned up with stacks of all of this music. And this guy, Jay, he was a real character. Jay was. Uh, on the way over there on the plane, always do your research about something. On the way over on the plane, he went, you might want to read my book. He gave me a book, and it was his book about he was Scotland's hardest football hooligan. <laughs> and I was like, ah, this is going to be interesting. And I remember talking to him about music, and he wasn't as interested in music as I was. He was interested <laughs> in business and putting these parties on. Mm-hmm. Anyway, he's a great fellow, Jay, and he gave me a great opportunity. But when I got there, he was like, yeah. And I remember he said, everyone, everyone's going to come and check you out on a Thursday at Busby's. So that's what we're going to do first. And he got these massive posters everywhere. And he's like, yeah. And everyone come to check you out. Mm. I remember getting there and playing a lot of music people never heard. The people that had lived there for a long time, the workers and people that lived in, the expats that lived there, instantly loved it. Because you can only hear certain tracks so many times for five years. And you're like, I want to hear something different. Mm. What was some great parties. When I was there, there was a lot of football firms out there. And I'm a massive Millwall supporter. And the t- both the teams, West Ham and Thing, went to Tenerife for their pre-season for like a little holiday, yeah? Mm-hmm. But I met a lot of West Ham fans who I should probably not have ever got on with on paper. And I met a guy called John O'Brien. And he said, I really like what you play. One of my friends is doing a club back home in a Paradise Club in Islington. You heard of it? And I was like, no, I've been out here too long, obviously. So give me a tape. And I gave him a tape. And... That guy was JP, JP and Chris. 
Mm-hmm. And, uh, when I came back in the in the winter, I came back. I think DJing in a club every single night of the week for a whole summer makes you a much better DJ. Because sometimes we used to share what shifts used to go on. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I go on and do like the early shift when there was ten people in there, and the object was keeping them in there. I think that taught me a lot about DJing mm-hmm. and about programming music as well. Because uh, anyone can go on, a, well, mainly anyone can go on the club and it's buzzing in there and it's great. It's not, you know, it's pretty, it's pretty hard to, to fuck it up if you like. But yeah. uh, I did notice, I thought to myself, when I go back, I should be better, you know? Mm-hmm. Straight away, I noticed I was much more on it when I went back after this kind of intense nine months of training. And I started getting a little bit of feeling. The music then was just changing between hardcore and the four to the floor stuff. And I started noticing without realizing or making any big decision, but I'm quite liking this more breakbeaty type stuff, you know? Mm-hmm. I remember tracks like Narrow Mind with this guy just chanting this ragger thing down all the way through it on the mic. And I was like, I like that. If you listen back to it now, tracks like Success and Effect. Mm-hmm. And of course, later on, you start to get tracks like We Are E, mm-hmm. which is much more breakbeat orientated. And I didn't realize, and I made no big decision. I just slowly veered down this road rather than the house one. Mm-hmm. And uh, I remember JP phoning up and saying, yeah, John gave me the tape. I really like it. I think you could do, I think you could do something here. And I was like, okay. Well, then I knew Mickey as well by that time. Mickey was working there. Paradise, Able Water Paradise wasn't at that time jungle. It was just beginning to go down that road. And then I got a call one night. I went out and done a gig and came back. And I got a call one night about two in the morning at home. JP saying, Randall can't make it. If you can get here within an hour. And I was like, I can't even phone anyone, you know. Just get in your car, get your reps and go. And I went there. And the rest is history. Because I went in there and I played. It was a very difficult club to play. But that crowd already knew what they liked. Mm-hmm. And they had a team that was building in there, you know, with Gasho, mm-hmm. Randall, Mickey, Kenny. And to go there and try, and Rizzy used to be the warm-up DJ. And I remember thinking, if you can play here, you can play anywhere. Yeah. And I remember they, Jay and that said to me, right, okay, got some really good reports from you. These DJs are now starting to get busier outside of AWOL. Mm-hmm. We'll use you as a substitute. And I was like, great. So if anyone couldn't make it, I'd be in there and I just ended up thinking this is the best place I've ever played at. Yeah. You know, dirty, grotty, dark club with the most amazing sound system. Everyone in there, a lot of dangerous people in there, mm-hmm. but they had a dangerous door team as well, Robbie and the lads. So it kept, it was a little bit edgy, but in a good way, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. There was no fancy lights and stuff. And then one day, Joe, uh, Jay phoned me up, Jay and Chris, and said, we've got some good news. The boys have said they want to add you to the team. And I was like, and that then was really the beginning of my career going bang. And then, and uh, just at that moment, that's when Jungle really kind of went worldwide. Yeah, yeah. Rather than just in the UK. Yeah, and I mean, that explosion at that time, I mean, did you realise that you were at the centre of this storm, you know, at the for- at the forefront of a brand new genre? You know, you were the pioneers of this, you know, no one else was really playing this it was so underground and so born from the uk i mean it was it's, it's a huge thing and you know at that time did you feel a responsibility at the time i was so deeply into getting the next dub plate cut <laughs> <laughs> that i didn't even have time to really think about the significance of it you knew something was going on but also you know when i started playing house i was thinking this might be over in six months mm-hmm. 
Yeah. And it didn't, you know? And I think in jungle, if you ask most of the DJs, unless they was pretty you know, more tuned into what was happening, I was thinking, let's just go with it as long as it lasts, you know? I, I, I wish, if I had any regrets, I wish I took a few more deep breaths and really was more aware of what was going on. But at the time also, you become very busy mm. and it is on to the next set, you know? Mm. You're as good as your last set. Forget about that, that's, that's gone. Mm. Your next one's got to be better. I, I do like that the way that everyone was thinking, because I think it helped improve the music and the scene. Yeah. But yeah, definitely exciting times. I mean, amazing to be part of anything like that. You know, you look back now and immensely proud as well, you know, mm. immensely proud to have been part of that. And also yeah. very fortunate. You know, I, I'd always say as well, there's a lot of guys I met along the way, in-house as well, who was unbelievable DJs. Some of these guys, for whatever reason, they maybe didn't believe in themselves enough. I mean, I've, there's a lot of people that I always thought, this guy's got to make it. For some reason, he didn't. Mm. And I always say to people, we were all very lucky, you know. I was lucky to have been in Tenerife. I was lucky to have met John. I was lucky to his friend to have been Jay. Blah, blah, blah. You put all these things together, but um, the universe is a strange thing when it puts, you know, a bit of that there and a bit of that here and it all comes together. Yeah, certainly. And I mean, like, I always found in that scene, it was about who had that dub plate, who had that tune, and you'd only know that certain DJs would be able to play that tune and that's their kind of like little secret weapon. I mean, were you always trying to outdo each other with the moments where you were playing something and you had some of the other DJs, when it was competitive, were they like, you know, giving you praise for it or were they a bit like, oh God, he's got that tune, oh fucking hell, you know what I mean? Is it more like that? If I'm really honest, Matt, there's probably an element of both. When you've just played a a track, right, and it's got like, let's just say it's got an old uh, Caperton sample, for instance, right? Mm -hmm. It's a version that a certain producer has done for you and you're like, and everyone's going mad. And then the next DJ comes on and an hour into his set, and you hear the sample and you go, oh, I've just played that. And then you realise quite quickly, he's got a version that Dillinger or something just done that you haven't got. And you're like, (laughs) Shit. <laughs> you know, it's a bit like Top Trumps. <laughs> Top Trumps with vinyl. Well, dub plates mainly wasn't, you know, the vinyl was kind of, it was a very small part of it at that time. Mm. It was all about Music House and Acid Tapes and, uh, yeah. And that, but, but I also would say the one thing about AWOL was, was in a, and, I, and I think this is very important why maybe we're still around. That was the place, AWOL was the place that the DJs went to when they finished their sets. So you'd have like Groove Rider, Hype, Bookham, Fabio, Frost, Brian, all of these people, they'd all do their sets mm-hmm. and they'd end up there. That would be, they'd come and let their hair down there. Mm-hmm. And when D, I remember once, Kenny playing an early set, never forget this, Kenny playing an earlier set and saying like, oh, I haven't got long to get to like, to Bristol or, my might in Cardiff. I've got Cardiff, then Bristol. And I was like, right. He's like, you're going to come on 15 minutes early. I was like, yeah, go on, then get off, whatever. And then the last hour of April, we used to, every now and again, we used to do like, you go on to one in the afternoon, right? And then I remember seeing Kenny at about 11 o'clock, sweating. Like, You're right, Kenny? He's like, yeah, yeah, just come back for the last hour. <laughs> Kenny had started there like 10 hours before, went to somewhere like Bristol, then went to Cardiff and then drove back like a lunatic to get the last night. You know, he probably drove straight past his bed. But that was how committed people were at the time to really be, and that, was, that goes for everybody. It, there was a real unity about that place. Mm-hmm. I don't think there was anything like it. I think it was unique. Mm. You know, there was lots of other brilliant brands that are all still going now, and I salute all of them. Mm-hmm. But there was something about AWOL, and I'm probably biased, but I think I'd be saying it even if I wasn't part of it. 
playing a record and you've got like this hand comes over and with a load of rings on and he's like trying to rewind every other record and people slapping all that was Goldie obviously at the time and you know and people fighting with other people trying to stop the music and other people fighting grabbing their hands it was something that stayed with me forever it was just yeah. the most immense a time and not just that the energy in the place was mm. it's very hard to describe it to people but people that were there knew it people have come up to me all around the world and said I came over to England once and I went to Able in that shitty little grotty club it wasn't small you get like 1500 people in there but I'd go into that club and that sound I've never heard anything like it since mm -hmm. and you'd have like one red light no real lasers or anything like that you know you'd have GQ Mm -hmm. hosting rather than emceeing mm -hmm. for 12 hours. <laughs> you know, years later on, Fearless become part of that and then Gary was getting out of work. And I must say hello to Prince as well. But, you know, it was a real team effort. And what I really loved about it was it was a team and everyone went in there and represented with their records every week. And if you ask any DJ ever, from all the way from Groove Rider to every big DJ, when they came there, they're like, it was quite a tough place to come and play if you weren't part of that team. But they all came there and, and done well. Mm -hmm. But it was somewhere that put it, it got you on your toes. You had to really dig deep. Amazing. And I think that was a that was a beautiful thing to be part of. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, that whole era as well exists. Like there are these artifacts like tape packs, you know, were huge back then. You know, you'd go to an event and a few weeks later, you'd be able to like relive the whole thing via cassettes and things like that. I mean, you know, and these things still exist. They're all online. But these these are actually official things from the event and they still exist now. I mean, you, you said you're a collector and a hoarder beforehand. Are you collecting these as well? So I started looking a couple of years ago. It is mind-blowing. 
firstly, to all the promoters that we never knew that we was taping, you owe me a lot of money. <laughs> uh, now listen, to go with the tapes, it was always a bit controversial with the tapes of whether people liked them or not. Mm. But all I can say is, in Able one night, there was like these really like frail Canadian guys standing in the corner, listening to what we was doing. And we all become very good friends with these guys because they took us out to Canada and made the whole thing in North America explode. They went, they come on holiday to England and they went to Camden Market. And there was a guy called Paul the Tape that we all knew, Paul, bless him. I don't know how, he would give back machines and piles of cash to people in Ministry of Sound, whatever club it was. He has got the most amazing stuff, right? He used to get AWOL taped and our tapes used to end up on his stall. These kids came to Camden and said, what music have you got? Have you got anything like reggae or maybe breakbeat? It's like, well, I've got this new jungle thing. I didn't know what jungle was. Mm -hmm. These kids bought tape packs, took them home back to America, and on the strength of them packs, came back to England to go to AWOL. Right? And then they put on these parties called Cyrus. Mm -hmm. The last few Cyruses they'd done, the last few big ones, was 25,000 people at them. They had like Eminem playing and stuff like that. So them tape packs mm. that everyone used to moan about not getting any money for, mm -hmm. they was the reason I've been to, I remember Kenny was the first DJ they booked. And Kenny Ken come back, I love Kenny. Kenny come back and was just like, I went out there, I maybe played one of the best sets I've ever played. And whoever goes out there next, you better go and represent because it is on out there. Let me tell you, it is on. That was the second one that they booked. I remember going out there and playing like a big ski lodge. And I was on before Delight. They had Groovers in the Heart out, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. They was there. It was a massive record worldwide. And I was on before them, and the people performing played house. And I was thinking, and, they, and the kids are like, you wait, you're going to be really shocked. And I went out and played at this party, and it was all dub plates. Mm. And people went mental. I've been out there 50 times since. So them tapes that we moaned about not getting our couple of hundred quid for, mm -hmm. they sent us around the world and they sent this music around the world. And like you say, that that was our, uh, the way hip hop had, uh, you know, street tapes, whatever they're called, mm -hmm. street mixtapes. Mm -hmm. You can't ever deny the power of what they've done for getting this music out. This is obviously pretty intimate. Yeah. You know, yeah. That, that, made the, that made the scene worldwide for me. Yeah. That's why we started doing tours of America and places like Canada. You know, it's another thing as well in, the rooms were quite small in Jungle when, when we first went out to North America. A few years later, the whole roles were reversed. The big room was the Jungle Room and the house room was the small room. Mm -hmm. And the promoters you speak to would never, ever believe that. So, yeah, all through all through uh, the TDK Chrome. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, and that's, that's exactly how I discovered this scene. Like, you know, I passed a tape at school by someone, like, have a listen to this. And, like, I'd have no... It's like from Dreamscape 2... I had no idea of like, what is this music? How is, is it someone playing live? You know, what is it like a DJ? There's like an MC on it. What, 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 you know, I want to know more. I can hear this huge crowd. Yeah. It's, and you know, you feel like you've discovered like a secret and yeah. yeah like you say, for them to take those tapes to a different country and those tapes have created an entire scene that is huge to this day. That's bonkers to think about it. Yeah. yeah. And, and I think you have to pay homage to reggae in that sense as well mm. because I used to have one of my friends in Jamaica used to go back and see his family sometimes and when he used to come back he used to bring cassettes back of like clashes you know mm -hmm. and uh, that was like oh my god what is that record what is that vocal I've heard that vocal but I'm not sung like that it's like a different version 
And that whole thing was really kind of tied in with the way that the jungle scene exploded. Mm-hmm. We wanted to have fresher music. You'd hear people saying, oh, my God, Mickey Finn come over and played Mickey Finn the DJ and like, heard these certain specials that only this person had, you know? Mm-hmm. Randall and Abel used to be dropping stuff of, uh, of, of uh, metalheads, of metalheads from Goldie, obviously. Mm-hmm. And people would be like, I ain't got that version. How'd you get that, you know? And, and I love what, what people like uh, Frost and, and Brian did, you know, Brian G and Frost, what they'd done with that whole day, had a lot of stuff from Bristol, you know, Ronnie, Crust, Dyer, Sav, a lot of these guys, they had specials at the time that, I think Warhead was on the promo. I think Warhead didn't come out for about three years. It's like, put it out, for God's yeah, sake, get yeah. the dagger it, you know? <laughs> so, yeah, I just think that having something special and making people feel like it's special to be there hearing it, that's the thing about now is if you don't go out there and witness it, where a lot of stuff, not everything was taped back in the day. Mm-hmm. So you had to be there to hear a special moment mm-hmm. where by now someone's recorded it. It's on a stream somewhere. It's yeah. on a thing. So yeah. it doesn't, I don't think you have to pass, participate as much maybe in actually going in, going to them places. Yeah. So right. So right. So, I mean, you know, I want to talk about um, like the, the, the other side, like I appreciate it, I'm probably going to fast forward a little bit, but like the other side of like your career as well, in terms of you're not only a DJ, but you've, you know, you've traveled the world as a, a sound and tour manager working with like Larry Heard. You know, how did that kind of pivot happen in your career? And, you know, it's, it's been, I'd imagine doing that was quite different from what you had been doing. Like, just take us through that. So, obviously, I spent a lot of money in the black market records back in the day. And I met a guy called Fraser Cook, who was, he was a hairdresser. I think he used to cut my hair in a shop called Demont, which is, ended up being bathing out. And he always used to say to me, how do you not know Rene? And I said, what do you mean? He's like, you're in Soho all the time. Mm-hmm. Rene's in Soho all the time. Rene is the founder of black market records. He's the guy that started it. Mm-hmm. You spent a shitload of money in there over How do you not know him? And I said, He's a little bald guy with glasses. He said, yeah. I said, I've said hello to him a couple of times. He said, you two. He said, you two are very much like, you need to introduce yourself. I need to introduce you to him. He introduced me to Renault and we just hit it off. Renny at the time had sold the store to Nicky and Dave Piccioni. And Renault was managing Larry. Anyway, me and Renny become really, really great friends. Like really good friends. And I just remember, he said, this is when the jungle thing had just started as well. When Abel was on. He said, uh, fancy doing a bit of A&R, working with me. I'm working at MCI. And I said, okay, yeah, yeah, maybe, yeah. And at the time, probably was a stupid decision because I didn't have time to do anything. And he said, meet me at this office. And we went to offices, an office opposite uh, Hyde Park. Beautiful office. And he had like an office looking out over the park. And they had just done a massive deal with Interscope at the time. And you'd have like all these famous people coming through the building. And I was like, oh, I like this. So I ended up working with him on, and it started with Black Market, the record label, and what he was doing. Mm-hmm. And then I said, Renee, maybe me and you should start a label. We started getting a lot of stuff that was coming in that was trying to, people in most majors know very little about music. Mm-hmm. They know lots and lots about business. And I understand that's how it works. But there was all of this stuff that I was getting. You know, I was, I was playing like uh, book of tracks that Bookham had made and stuff. I can't remember it was Atlantis, but anyway, mm-hmm. I was playing them stuff and saying, This kid's a great producer, Ronnie Size, Pesho, mm-hmm. Fotec. Mm-hmm. Listen to this music, it's amazing. They just didn't get it, you know. And then we all started getting a lot of other music coming in. And uh, Ronnie's deal was up, and he said, 
why don't we just go and do this on our own? Take a lot of this stuff and put it out ourselves. So we put out the uh, we put out the total science with their money, using their money back in the day, putting out three albums. And then we went and got an office in Fulham. And me and Rennie just slowly but surely become not just business partners, but even closer friends. Mm-hmm. And then I met Larry, I met Larry a long, long time ago. And then Renee, a few years back, I kind of I started losing a little bit of love for the for the drum and bass scene. Mm-hmm. A lot of politics got involved. If you've got to blow the right smoke up the right person's ass sometimes to get a gig, and that's never a bit of me. I'd rather not work. Mm-hmm. And uh, started realising with a lot of the music, a lot of the reggae samples and stuff that I used to love playing, there was rehatches of rehatches of rehatches, and some of it I liked, and then other bits I was like, don't know if I'm feeling this as much. Mm-hmm. So I kind of started distancing myself from it, and then started working with Larry. Subsequently moved to Ibiza. Mm-hmm. In that time, I'd been working with Larry doing the sound for Larry for quite a while. Mm-hmm. And Rene was the tour manager. And then as Larry got to know me a little bit better and what I could do, Rene started sitting back a little bit, not doing so much of that. Fast forwarding them to kind of where I'm now. Lockdown was uh, amazing for me. <laughs> not amazing, I don't mean amazing for people yeah. who lost their lives and their livelihoods. But I can only personally think, and I know that sounds quite selfish, but for me, it made me, I've never slowed down, I've never stopped. Mm. I still bought loads of music. I was still DJing. Mm-hmm. It made me really think, what do I want to do? What do I want to do next? Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not getting any younger, but I want to carry on just doing the same and going back to playing the same jungle events. And blah, blah. So I just thought, do you know what? I'm starting to buy a lot of old soul music again and listening to different stuff and being on the circuit with Larry. If the guys went back to the hotel, I'd go back to the events and go and listen to not to the main stage, I'd go to these little tents and listen to what was going on in places like Russia or Australia or Mexico, wherever that to be. Mm-hmm. And I started falling in love with the unusual stuff and the eclectic stuff again. Mm-hmm. And I think living in Ibiza, working with Larry, getting to the end of where um, I was with Jungle, and I'm still, I'm still playing Jungle, I'm still never going to stop playing the music I love. Mm. But I think it made me want to kind of reinvent myself. And I find that's where I am now. I met a kid a few years ago when me and Mickey was doing drum and bass parties called Sunbeats in Ibiza. We've done it for seven years. Mm. I got to meet a lot of people in Ibiza and there was a kid I met called Alex Dirty Herbert. And he had something about him. He reminded me of a bit of a, a young version of myself. And I said to him, I'm thinking of starting something over here. I'd love you to be part of it. And we become good friends and we started a label called Balearic Breaks. Mm-hmm. I remember talking to him and saying, look, this is the way I want it to be. I want it to be like a family. Like the artists want to be on the label for the right reasons. You know, there's no real money in digital music at the minute. The money's in touring and, mm-hmm. and partners. And we started this label. We got some music. And I was like, right, it's drum and bass for house people. Because I've been at parties before. A couple I played in the States. Sure, I went on before Little Louis. Well, I'm sorry, Louis Vega. And it was all house. And what I realised is if you almost play on the real unobtrusive stuff like Pulp Fiction, let's say, mm-hmm. or Metalheads. Mm-hmm. People can get their head around that. If you go and play on the latest dub play, you're going to just scare the life out of <laughs> So I thought, how about if we started a label, Ibiza's first ever drum and bass label as well, mm-hmm. bass label, and we start with nice soulful stuff. And along the line, you can educate people a little bit, and that's what we've done. And the rest is history. We're, everything's kind of gone full circle. I feel like this whole being a kid and being into soul music. But what it really is, is soulful breakbeat. So I'm not ruling out in the future that we'll be doing stuff that's 140 BPM or whatever. But right now, it's, it's been hard work and a lot of hours and a lot of blood, sweat and tears and your money and your time. But where we're at at the minute, 
I'm, I'm absolutely chuffed. And thanks to everyone who's helped us along the way and believed in us. I think we've got a great roster of artists. But it all, it all kind of, it's all kind of gone full cycle, you know, literally. Yeah, that's nuts. Yeah, yeah. but to, to to hark back to that original influence that you had, you know, and be into, be able to bring that soul into this and, you know, create something. And, you know, Ibiza's not necessarily... You say Ibiza, you don't think of a drum and bass scene at all. No. Um, and I mean, it's fantastic that you're taking a bit of the island and injecting it into what you're famous for. It's, you know, it's a new genre. If I'm really honest, I think the music over the last 10 years in Ibiza has been pretty poor. Mm. You know, a lot of people won't say it because they earn a lot of money out of being in Ibiza. But I'm going to be really honest. People are like, oh, I bet you went out there for the clubs. Most of the clubs I go out to, like the best things I'd go to, would have a small amount of people. 300, 500, still people playing quality music out. There's still a special, there's a special energy about that island, you know. Mm-hmm. I hope the money doesn't, because there's a lot, of, it's now become very money orientated. I always just say it used to be a millionaire's playground, now it's a multi-millionaire's playground. Mm-hmm. But I still think when you have that, you have a knock-on effect, the good music will come back, it will be cool again, I hope. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, I do want to move on to the perfect playlist that's on Spotify. It's the House Culture Perfect playlist. Every single one of our guests has put in five tracks in there. It's huge selection of music that is really eclectic and all over the map, which is great. You know, just stick it on shuffle and you'll discover something new, something old, you know, something anthematic and something that, you know, you've probably never heard before. So... You know, we always start off with a catalyst tune, um, a track that originally got you into dance music. The first track was a fatback band, mm-hmm. and it was Spanish Hustle. I think I've always been a bit of a fiend around percussion and drums, mm-hmm. and that's got some amazing bongos and percussion in it. It was a track I remember putting on and dancing to in my bedroom, you know, really proper getting down to that track. And then I remember years later going out to clubs and hearing it. It's a bit of a curveball, that one, because when you put it on, I'm not sure if it might have even been a B-side. I'm not sure it might have even been a B-side, but there's just something very special for me about that track. There's a breakdown in the middle of it that goes on. reminds me of something like Santana or something, but it's got the most amazing percussion and these guitar licks to die for. And it's just something that will... I remember uh, a couple of years ago, we went to a festival in Lisbon and Nightmares on Wax was playing before Larry. And halfway through his set, he's playing this great DJ, great selection of music. Mm-hmm. And he played... The version that I've got halfway through, and I remember just thinking, going out, leaving Larry, going out around the front and dancing, and people probably thinking, "What's this old dude up to?" <laughs> but uh, yeah, yeah, amazing track, still awesome, awesome, and um, yeah, so a floor filler, and this is one. It's Alex Reese Pulp Fiction, and this for me, my experience with this tune is one of those ones, just people playing it and it never coming out. For me, as like a record buying punter. You would hear the odd person play it, but I remember it taking years for this track to like arrive um, on it, you know, and then he released the album. But um, yeah, so I mean, and it's still, I mean, it must be like, when did it come out? Like 96 or whatever. It's like 25 years old, say, maybe more. Why is that still a floor filler? The best version of that, the, the, the digital version isn't quite the version. No, right? you're right. But, but what I would say is, that record, going back, I remember playing at a house event for like three or 4,000 people out in Denver, Colorado. Big shout down to Hippie and Phil that put me on their event. And I remember it was all house, and I thought, what's the perfect track to just switch it? Mm-hmm. And that was the tune I played. And I remember not many people walked off the dance floor. People are like, wow, this is really good. Yeah. And it's a track that I think the pace of it is not too fast. 
I think the bass line, mm-hmm. there's just something infectious about that. And that jazzy feel to it. I think that that is a track that if you don't like drum and bass or jungle, you can go and play that to someone and they can, they could totally get their head around it. Yeah. And that's a track that, that I will still, you can have all of these tunes that might be more powerful and that the minute someone hears that boom, the place will just light up, you know? So yeah, big shout down out to Alex Reese and Goldie uh, and Ant and all the guys over at Metalheads, the Metalheads family. Yeah. Still a brilliant. Still a brilliant track. I mean, Let's move on to a sunsetter. Uh, you live in the the, the island of uh, that's most famous for its sunsets as well. I mean, what have you chosen here? Can you remember? Well, there's a reason. There's a couple of reasons about why I chose it. Was I remember the track years ago? I remember sitting outside Cafe Matt. It might have been Matt. I can't remember if it was Mambo or Cafe Del Mar. But I remember someone coming and playing like a real nice, chill out sunset set. And they played some really different music. It wasn't dancing. That's what I love. They played tunes like, there was a really nice, beautiful, like stringy, classical Stevie Wonder tune. And I was like, I like what this guy's doing. He's not just gone for your, that's what I call chill out 23. And put on, you know, he really thought about what he was doing. Mm. And I remember hearing that tune, and I'd always liked that tune from being a kid. And I remember hearing that. And another reason, I'm going to be really honest, another reason I like that track when I think of sunsets, and it's got nothing to do with sunsets. In about 1996, 7, I went to someone's house and he had the most amazing, and I mean amazing sound system. And I took DMT and he put that record on. And it, I melted in the most beautiful, never to be best, <laughs> never to be topped way. And that mm. record always reminds me of Sunsets and DMT. Yeah. A bit controversial, but anyway. Good. So <laughs> no. Big shout going out to Daz and Bonnie. <laughs> yeah, and it, like the track that we're talking about is the love theme from Blade love Runner. Theme from Blade Runner, yeah. Ridley Scott and mm. uh, Vangelis. And I just, it's just the most, the saxophone in it is just, just like wraps you up. It's yeah. beautiful. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Beautiful. Beautiful piece of music. Still stands. Sounds the test of time. And I've heard it since. That's at an IB for as well. I've heard someone else play it just as the sun's going down. I'm like, good shout. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that whole that whole soundtrack is is top tier stuff. Yeah. 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 Add DMT to that and it's even better. <laughs> <laughs> Next time I watch Blade Runner. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. Cool. Okay. Let's move on to a tearjerker. I mean, a track dance music or otherwise fills you with emotion. And oh. I'm not necessarily that familiar with this one. And I took a listen to it before we got on this call. And uh, yeah, stunning. Yeah, I, I, I find that art track to be even hard to talk about. It's like uh, it's Anthony and the Johnsons, isn't it? I hope there's someone. Yeah, Anthony and the Johnson. I hope there's someone. I love the fact that, like, going back when Ronnie Sides won the Mercury Music Prize, it was so proud, you know, mm-hmm. to see that, mm-hmm. to see Ronnie and them guys come from where they come from, what they've done, what they achieved, and it made me always interested. I don't think I was maybe maybe it wasn't around, but I wasn't really that interested in before that. And then I remember. A few years later, you had Dizzy run it, which was also amazing to see. But I remember watching it one time, and they thought, oh, yeah, and this, this year it's, and, and then the Johnsons, this guy's up for it. And I remember he went on, and the first thing I wasn't sure whether he was a man or a, or a woman, and he had a little bit of a very, very different to look at. And I was like, I bet this is going to be different. Mm-hmm. And he opened his mouth, and something came out that was almost haunting, but in the most beautiful way. He was vulnerable. The emotion in his voice was like, 
I didn't even know at the time what he was singing. But it made me emotional. I remember getting all teary-eyed, thinking, pull yourself together, you know? You're on a bus. <laughs> but uh, no, I was thinking, pull yourself together. What's what weird, you know? I'm a very mm-hmm. emotional person. I love music. It can really transport you to somewhere magical. Mm-hmm. And then I got the words to the song. Mm-hmm. And it's about, there's a place between when we leave here and when we go on to the next amazing part of our journey. I'm not a religious person, mm-hmm. but I believe something much bigger awaits us. I believe in the universe. Mm-hmm. And it's the, that moment of really being alone when you leave this journey and you go on to your next one. You know? mm-hmm. it just There's something inside that that I'm sure every, at some point in their life, everyone's thought about that. I think at the time as well, that come out, I'd lost a couple of really close people to me and a lot of good friends. And some of them were pretty young as well. And it happened really quick. Mm-hmm. And I think it just, it moved me in a way. And I... I find it hard. If you put that on now, I'll have to walk off. I can't listen to it without, I'm gone. It's like, wow. It's beautiful. It's one of the most beautiful pieces of music. Incredible choice. Yeah, no, and thank you for introducing me to it as well. It's really, I loved it. Just quickly as well, Matt. Go on. If anyone wants to listen to it, on Spotify, the versions they have on there, they're very good. Mm -hmm. Put in Anthony at the Johnson's live on Jules Holland's later and watch his version of him doing it live because... It's, I think it's captured something that's not even on the record. Awesome. The real human element of it. Okay. Good advice. I'll dig that out as well. No, thank you. Um, I mean, and from that, we go to a last tune. It's the end of the night. Crowd are asking for one more. What do you play? Can you remember? <laughs> another, yeah, yeah. Another, another record that's very strange how things go in full circle. So I'm 14. I was working at a supermarket in Blackheath called Lipton's or something. And I'm in there. I can't remember what music was about at the time, but I'm very much into soul still and that. And all of a sudden, I'm listening to, like, soul sonic force and a lot of electro and hip-hop. And all of a sudden, I hear this track, Rapper's Delight, Sugar Hill Gang. Mm-hmm. And it was like, with a lot of hip-hop, it was like quite gaps in between. Someone would do a little flow and it was quite a big gap. Well, this was like relentless. This was like a tag team of guys. Right, I've done my bit, your bit, your bit. It was just like, Wow. And I remember I worked in there with a girl called Jackie. Bless you, Jackie. I told her how much I loved the record. She went home. I bought the 12 inch. She went home and listened to it and wrote down every word for me so I could learn the words, <laughs> right? And the words were amazing as well. Mm-hmm. So that was a record that was always like, you should go out and listen to that. People now might go, oh, it's cheesy because it's been used in every advert or whatever. Mm-hmm. But I still think it's an amazing piece of music, right? Mm-hmm. You go fast forward a few years, we was working for a, a company called Century Music, and they had, I don't know if you remember at Leicester Square, was it Home? Yeah. There's a club called Home. Yeah. Uh, we had their Christmas party in there, yeah? And uh, the first guy that come on from their back catalogue was uh, Cole Douglas singing Kung Fu Fighting. All the guys, it was a Christmas party, all the guys took their tires, I put them around their head, and was all doing these dances, which looking back now, silly, that was funny when he was drunk. <laughs> And then they said, we've got a special guest from America. And at the end of the night, me and my girlfriend at the time, Sarah, she was like, who do you think it is? And I looked, there, some big artists there. I don't know why, they had Interscope signed to them in some ways to do with MCA. And I thought that it might have been like Tupac. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was hoping. Anyway, it wasn't. But it was even better, I could say, in a way. Because the curtains came open and, and it was Sugar Hill Gang. <laughs> and I was like, oh, my God. 
Sugar Hill Gang at your Christmas party. I've just won the I've just won the lottery. Anyway, they was on. I'll never forget, it was all quite big overweight. I was all taking their shirts off and dancing, and it was just the most amazing thing. Fast forward a few years, and a guy asked me to put some parties on with him, uh, some nostalgia events in Ibiza, mm-hmm. and I booked them to, to play. And they turned up and they played for an hour, and they was absolutely amazing. It's like, one, you forget, they didn't just have that hit. They had quite a lot of hits. Mm-hmm. They'd done like a medley of other people's stuff as well that they loved. And I got to meet them, and they was absolute gentlemen and still had the same passion for what they was doing to what they was when they was like 19, 20. And it was like, you know, if you'd have said to me, you're going to be working in that shop, years later, they're going to see them at your Christmas party, and years after that, you're going to book them for an event in Ibiza. Yeah, wow. Yeah, amazing, amazing. So... The world is a strange place, and anyone that's young that's listening to this, never give up or think anything's impossible, because if you'd have told me that when I was 14, 15, you know, this Jackie's writing their words down, I'm learning the words. It's like, years later, you're experiencing them at your Christmas party, and years later, you're booking them as an act and put them on in Ibiza. I mean, because, of course, they, you know, Ibiza and them go together like this, you know? <laughs> yeah, amazing. Big shout out to Alfredo as well. Absolutely. Yeah. Like you say, the world is a very strange place. You know, for me growing up, I was listening to you on tape packs and I'm sat here talking to you now. I've like through starting up a podcast, just through passion of music and, and going to events and things like that. You know, I've spoken to loads of my heroes. It's kind of weird and like, it's hard not to freak out when it's actually happening. <laughs> but um, yeah, people have been enjoying listening to it. So and yeah. you know what? It's just, it's beautiful actually to hear people. When you, I meet a lot of people in parties when you go out and uh, people are like, you know, what uh, what did it mean to you? You know, this tape, like you said about the tapes. Mm. I've had kids come up to me and say, can you sign this tape? My older brother used to play this. And at the time, I didn't understand it because yeah. I was into hip hop. Yeah. But years later, I got into drum and bass. And now I'm a drum and bass DJ earning a living out of it. And I'm like, how things can go, mm-hmm. you know, how they all connect yeah. is an amazing is an amazing experience. And I've met some one day I met, I met Roy Ayers a couple of years ago in uh, St. Petersburg, you know, Larry was was on the bill with Roy Ayers and I'm like sitting in the room talking to Roy Ayers and his drummer is saying, yeah, I've just come back from working with Jacksons, I'm on tour with Stevie Wonder and I'm sitting there just going, oh, wow, wow, you know, yeah. life's beautiful, yeah. life's strange sometimes but very beautiful. Mm. And music connects people in that sense as well, totally. I mean, yeah. this does this does lead on to like our our, our final question, which we always asked um, our guests as well. Um, you know, some of the, some of the stuff you've just mentioned kind of feeds into that. I mean, obviously, we are house culture, and you know, like when we say house music, you know, you've been talking about house music, and you know, from the early days and whatever, and we're talking about the whole culture of the scene, the dance music community. You know, what has this brought to you in your life? Obviously, apart from a career and friends, you know, how else has it enriched your soul during your journey through it? Not just dance music, Matt. I had a a good childhood, but a strange one at the same time. And music was my salvation. Mm. Music was for me to put headphones on and to get away from the world, right? Still is, actually. And music's always been important to me. And along the way, there's been an amazing amount of coincidences that have happened beautiful things that have come out of music. I love the fact it's brought me together with people I'd never have met. Music for me has always been very a personal thing. I can sit there and it can make me, bring me back to a time that was just amazing in my life. It can take me back to times that were very uh, emotional in my life. 
there's something about them frequencies in music, whether it be dance music, whether it be pop music, rock, whatever it might be. There's something there that music is so personal to me. It has got me through so much stuff that's not been very positive. It's also been some of the most positive stuff that's ever happened to me. So I would say to people, you know, encourage your children to listen to different music. Who would have thought that a gay, predominantly black niche music that was very small, even in Chicago at the time, could bring this whole planet together? Mm-hmm. You know, when I was down at Glastonbury a few years ago, I saw what dance music was done there. I went to Glastonbury years ago when there was hardly any dance music at all. Yeah, yeah. To see what, what a massive part of that, that has become. Mm-hmm. I think it's amazing. I think it's amazing how never stop looking for new stuff as well. Don't just keep going back and saying, this was great. I'm constantly finding new music at the minute that just blows me away. Mm. And I think that music enriches all of our lives. And it's brought me and you together today to have this wonderful conversation. Mm-hmm. Thanks for that. I really appreciate no, it. You're welcome. Thank you. And, uh, and I'm sure that the other people you spoke to, to do with their stories, like you mentioned people like Terry Fire and that, mm-hmm. the stories are not too disjointed to a lot of other people's because at the end of the day, we're all of a certain age from a certain generation. Mm-hmm. And you know a lot of people now, not young kids, and say, oh, they haven't got the balls that we have and do this, that, and all that. Listen, they're living in a different world. You know, if I didn't have to go out and search for music and I could get it delivered to me for £1.50, I would do it. Yeah. If I was them, I would do it. You know, don't knock young. I think a lot of people are forever knocking young people mm-hmm. and saying, oh, it's not the same as when I'm around. Well, all generations say that. Young people now have got a whole different lot of problems to do with social media and to do with what goes on and, and the world that we're living in. Look at, look at what they've got at the minute. The world's a very strange place for everyone. Mm-hmm. I hope that they can find the same kind of comfort and solace in music as what we did. And I hope it is a massive part of their life, just as much as it has been for us. Perfect. That's, a, that's an incredible final thought. Thank you so much. It's been awesome. Thank you, Matt. I really enjoyed that. When are we going to do part two, three, four, and five? (laughs) House culture. That was great, wasn't it? I loved chatting to Darren. For me, as a child of the rave scene and someone who used to listen to his sets on those tape packs back in the day, it was a pleasure to meet him and talk all things music. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. And if you want to hear more from Darren, you can tune into his brilliant Balearic Breaks radio show broadcast every month on Open Lab Radio's Mixcloud and Soundcloud pages. Or you can even buy into his Balearic Breaks label that has just released an excellent EP from Brazilian producer Duo Science. They also have a new release coming soon from Nopo, so make sure you look out for that and the debut Balearic Breaks album coming from Scuff in 2023. Whilst you're adding that to your lineup of music, make sure you also follow the House Culture Perfect playlist, which you can find on Spotify. This is where you'll find all of the tracks that our previous guests have chosen, as well as Darren's submissions. However, be sure to follow his recommendation and watch Anthony and the Johnsons performing Hope There's Someone on Jules Holland. It really is quite something to behold. Once you've recovered from that, please help support us by doing all of that good stuff. Loving, liking, tweeting and sharing. Or please leave us a review and we'll give you a shout out on a future episode. This time I want to say a big hello to Leon Das. who got in touch on Instagram to say that he loves the podcast. However, he's terrible for knowing what the names of tracks are called. So it'd be more meaningful if we could play each perfect playlist tune as we talk about it. 
I would love to do the same, Leon. But there are all kinds of rights issues around music and podcasts and we wouldn't want our content to get struck off of our streaming services. However, things are going on in the background that might allow this change in the future. But please keep checking in with the perfect playlist for now. Then if you're not vibing with us on Instagram already, why aren't you? Come over and join the party at HouseCultureNet or by following the hashtag TrueHouseCulture. And finally, if you want to get in touch with me, Matt Rouse, you can do that directly on Instagram at D. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. EJ Matt Rouse. Thanks for listening. Rave safe and see you next time. House culture.